Well, Father, we are just grateful to be here today. We thank you that one day a week is, uh, one morning a week, we gather together as a community and we hear your word taught to us. And Father, we also understand that you often guide and direct our church through the preaching and teaching of your word. And I pray that this message will be notable as far as setting a culture in our church where we replicate ourselves to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Pray that the message will be clear and understandable. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in a little under two months, one of my favorite two weeks of the, well, every four years will take place, the Olympics. Anybody here big Olympic fans? Yes, we always get the sports package. I have a thing for European handball, personally. You ever watch that? I always watch it, and I think if we had our best athletes playing this game, we would dominate, right? It, it, and it's all the minor sports. It's all the countries kind of coming together, and it's really the spectacle of it. And, and it, it starts early, right? There's almost like an Advent season building up to the Olympics in the Olympic torch relay. Now, if you ever watch what happens uh, at some point in time in the near future uh, a group of dancers will gather together and and reporters and the audience and organizers will gather together in olympia greece the the site ancient site of the olympic games uh, they will go to the temple of hera and perform a ceremony where they will take a torch and put it in a parabolic mirror and the rays of the sun will focus on this torch and ignite it. And then they'll do some dancing. I watched YouTube videos this week for illustration purposes. And then they will ignite the Olympic torch, which will be transported over land, over sea, to the site of the Olympic Games. During the last Olympics in Rio de Janeiro, the torch traveled 12,400 miles over 106 days and was handed off over 12,000 times so that the original flame would ascend to the cauldron in Rio and be ignited at the climax of the ceremony where they say, let the games begin. Now, this is kind of, a, uh, kind of analogous to the journey of the gospel. Right, where 2,000 years ago, outside of Jerusalem, Jesus bowed his head and said, it is finished. Three days later, he was raised from the dead. And then, 50 days later, in Acts 1.8, he says this to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that started a relay of sorts where his disciples took the torch of the gospel and passed it on from generation to generation to generation with the end goal that the gospel would extend to the ends of the earth. I mean, it's really remarkable that a bunch of unremarkable men were able to take the gospel so that we who, now, who live in a, in a continent that was undiscovered at the time can gather together and share the same message that they heard here and, and beyond. And there is a genius to the strategy that they used. 
they passed the torch through the agency of discipleship. And in this passage today, 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, we, we see really one of the most influential verses in my life. It is God's strategy for expanding and growing his church. Let's read it. You then, my child, Paul talking to Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, in the context, Paul is in a Roman prison. He knows that his end is near. He will not get out this time. He knows that he is about to be martyred for the cause of Christ. We also know from the previous verses that all in Asia have turned away from him, that there was a massive defection in this Roman province where Timothy resided. We also know that Timothy will be summoned by Paul to come to Rome to visit him one last time. And while he's at it, bring a cloak and bring some parchments. And so the immediate concern is that Paul wants Timothy to appoint new leaders. He has to pass the torch. And he has to pass the torch to people who will also pass the torch. And this process went on and on and on to the point where today we are the fruit of that initial torch relay. I mean, I look at my life, I, I wasn't raised in a Christian family, but I came to Christ and I have been discipled by many men, many pastors, many lay leaders. Even as a student, I was discipled by an older student. God used other people to pour into my life so that I in turn can pour into other lives as well. You see, we're not just Christians here. We're you know, we are replicators, right? For the church to survive, disciples need to make disciples. And isn't that the Great Commission? One of the most famous passages in all of Scripture at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is going to give his final commission, the Great Commission, he says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now this is a passage where Jesus is about to leave them on their own. On account of the crucifixion, there was a mass defection from Jesus. There was only a faithful few followers, and Jesus says, that you guys are to go to all nations and he has a strategy in mind that as a disciple, you must make disciples. And part of making disciples is baptizing them, which speaks of the work of evangelism, right? And then teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, which would include the prime directive he's giving here. If you're a disciple being instructed in the ways of Jesus, part of the commands you are to obey is the command to make disciples. This is a corporate cause. It's something that everybody should be a part of. If you are a disciple, you're called to make disciples. 
So how do you do this? Well, in 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, Paul gives us a general strategy. As we go through it, we're going to see that to make disciples, you need to harness the power to disciple, define the purpose of a disciple, and select the people to disciple. And for those of you who are kind of new to our church, we're actually undergoing a, a big generational handoff. Right? Our you know, two pastors are, are being sent out from us to minister and encourage other churches. And that means that many of their responsibilities are being passed on to us. It was encouraging to see new blood on the drums, for instance, today. Right? Wasn't that great? And so there is a, a transition point in our church where many of these ministries need to be handed off. Many of these relationships need to be handed off. And for us to do this well, to keep the flame going and advancing, we all have to play our part in carrying the torch. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to survey this passage on these three points, and then I'm going to circle back and just try to give you some uh, additional insight on how you can have a disciple-making ministry. Okay, so let's look at the first point, the power to disciple. Okay, at its core, passing the torch is a supernatural activity. It's a supernatural activity. Without the grace of God and the power of God, it can never happen. We need His power. So before Paul gets to this call to pass the torch, he says this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So as a child, Timothy is the spiritual child of Paul. Paul played the role of a father. And he's about to give him a ginormous task. Timothy, I'm not going to be around anymore. You won't have my covering over you. You, you won't be able to tell people, don't talk to me, I'm just telling you what Paul told me. Right? That won't happen to you anymore. You're going to be entrusted with carrying on this ministry. You will be the one who's going to be appointing leaders. And as such, you need strength. I mean, look closely. You then, my child, right? Be strengthened. Okay, his strength is not going to come from within, it's going to come from without. Right? There is an external cause of power, an external agency. And what is that agency? It is by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, a lot of times when you think about grace, you think about the grace of the gospel, right? The grace that, that saves you, that, that transforms you. But we can't necessarily limit grace to like that one-time act that happened to you during that, that come-to-Jesus moment. It's something that's always taking place. It's the grace that strengthens you for ministry. I mean, Paul, Paul had a tough ministry. He was persecuted. He was tried. I mean, there are all kinds of things that happened to him. And what's interesting is he testifies that the only reason why he was able to survive was because of God's grace. 1 Corinthians 15.10 but by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them in the context of his ministry. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. All right, if you're going to share about the gospel of grace, that gospel of grace actually will animate your ministry. See, a lot of times when people are kind of reluctant to disciple, they say, you know what? I mean, who am I to disciple? Who am I to go up to a younger believer and say, spend time with me and learn how to walk with God from me? Follow me and I'll, I'll, I'll show you the ropes, right? It almost seems egotistical. And I think one of the reasons why some people have a hard time with it is, is they have perfectionistic tendencies. Okay, I'm not a perfectionist. Just look at my office desk, right? I'm not a perfectionist. But a perfectionist is somebody who refuses to accept any standard short of perfection. They put a lot of pressure on themselves. And many times what they will tend to do is say, if I can't do it perfectly, I better not do it at all. Okay, don't raise your hand. You know who you are. But I want you to, and so they'll, they'll tell themselves, well, if I can't disciple somebody perfectly, then I probably shouldn't be the one do it, doing it. Now let's follow that logic. If I can't be the perfect spouse... I better not get married. If I can't be the perfect parent, then I should not have children. If I can't be the perfect employee, then I better not get the job. If I can't share the gospel perfectly, I should not even preach the gospel. If I can't study the Bible perfectly, I shouldn't lead the Bible study. If I can't be a perfect Christian, then I shouldn't be a Christian. What's wrong with that logic? Are there any perfect Christians? The reasons why we are Christians is because we're not perfect. Do you see the irony? I mean, if you, you, you think I can't do ministry, I can't do gospel ministry, I can't share the gospel of grace that God came to save sinners because I'm a sinner, then who's ever going to share the gospel? I mean, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are called to be perfect, but we have failed to do so. Right? If you lose one game, you'll never have a perfect season. There's no perfect Christian. The only hope that we have is the gospel of grace, whereby God's kindness, those who follow Jesus, believe in His finished work, commit their lives to follow Him, He will graciously make them perfect. He will impute His perfect righteousness to them, and then in the process, they will grow until our perfection is realized when we see Jesus face to face. That is the gospel message. And so the reason why the gospel of grace animates us is we have hope that it's not us, it's the Lord. He uses broken vessels to accomplish his, his perfect will. And so you might be thinking, perfectionist, well, great. I am a perfectionist who doesn't understand the depths of the gospel. What will I ever do now? Well, you know what? God's grace is for perfectionists as well. See, the, the power of God's grace animates us because we know that the power is not determined by our performance. 
just by God's grace to you and through you. And frankly, you know what? Often God perfects you as you go about doing his ministry. I mean, one of the best things for my marriage is doing marriage counseling. As I'm talking to people about all these issues, I'm thinking, yes, I need to do that as well. One of the best things for my, my, my thought life is helping young men be obedient in the areas of personal purity. Right? As you go through it, that is often God's means of perfecting you. Now, I want to give a qualification, though. You know, sometimes people will almost use their imperfection as a certificate to qualify them for ministry. I'm not perfect and I know it. I'm authentic. I know how to help people with a terrible marriage because I have a terrible marriage. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, well... Being a broken sinner doesn't necessarily qualify you for ministry. Yet there has to be a modicum of, of, of spiritual growth where you are growing, you are, you are changing, you are being transformed, and you're helping people along the process. You know, one of the great ironies in ministry is that the people who are most qualified to, to, to disciple other people don't believe that they're qualified to disciple other people. And the people most unqualified to disciple other people believe they are qualified to disciple other people. The people who are easily convicted by sin, who are just very in touch with how often they failed and how much they need the grace of God, the people who are, who are the most likely to say, you know, I, God have mercy on me, I'm a, I'm a sinner, who have a humble disposition to God, those are the ones who should be discipling other people where those people who think, man, God's lucky to have me on his team are the ones who aren't. And the people with that skewed view of themselves, they are going to be the ones who will fill in the gap because there's something inside of them that has this deep desire to be affirmed by others and discipling people might be a way of doing so. So if you don't feel like you're adequate or worthy to be discipled, well, maybe you're not, but God is sufficient. And if you have questions about that, then talk to somebody. We would happily give you some guidance and direction on how you can be used to have your own discipleship ministry. But the point is, it's not about your power. It's about the power given to you by the grace of God, okay? So you need to harness the power to disciple others. Secondly, you need to define the purpose for a disciple. Look at verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So to have a successful torch relay, you need two things, right? You need a torch, and then you need multiple runners, right? If you're going to pass the torch, there needs to be somebody else to pass to, but you also need to have the torch. And you need to make sure that the torch has its original flame. Now, in this case, we see what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Now, when Paul's calling other witnesses, what he's saying is, this is not my message. This is a message that has been publicly proclaimed. 
You saw it, other people saw it, these other people can help you remember it, but this is not my message. This is a message that was preached in the presence of God's people. You know this message, Timothy. We talked about it, we shared it, you helped me write letters that promoted it. This is the message that you are to entrust to other people. It's like Aunt Edna's carrot cake recipe, right? The family secret. For it to still be Aunt Edna's carrot cake recipe, there needs to be a precise transmission of all the ingredients and instructions on how to do it. And so it is with the gospel. For the, for the gospel, this message to be transmitted, there needs to be a precise recollection and transmission of the message. I actually did some research about the Olympic torch. And there have been some disasters where they've carried the torch and it rained and that torch got doused hundreds of miles away from its destination. An Olympic official just took his lighter, lit it again, and then it just continued, right? It's not the original flame. It didn't come from the Temple of Hera, but a big lighter, right? It's not the same thing. And so they have this new torch technology where you have the, the bright flame and then within the actual torch mechanism, there's a, almost like a pilot light. So if one gets doused, they can actually relight it. And so that Olympic flame that you will see is the real flame continuing on. And so there is a need when you pass the torch to make sure it's the same flame. And so you see why... Paul says something like 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Right? To pass the flame, there is a protection of the doctrine of Scripture. And, and Timothy did it. Do you know why we have First and Second Timothy? These were personal letters given to Timothy that Timothy then dispersed to other people. I mean, it is, it's amazing how we can read the very words of Paul. What Paul wrote down in that Roman prison during his first day and second day, we actually have and we can read. It has been protected and transferred to us. They did a great job of keeping the original flame, and that's our stewardship as well, right? You make sure that the original flame is preserved. You don't update the gospel, you don't change the gospel, you don't contour it. You take it as it stands and transfer it to other people. So you need the original flame, right? That's the first step. But you also need the runners. You need the people. Look at uh, 2 Timothy 2.2 again. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now there are, let's count the generations here, okay? First generation, you have Paul. He hands it off to Timothy. Man, love the participation. Great job, kids. And he, and he will hand it off to who? Faithful men who will hand it off to others. Do you see what's happening here? Four generations in one verse. Paul has 
the future in mind. And what he is doing is he's taking a strategy that was utilized by Jesus to continue the message. Now, one of another real influential verse in my life about this is found in Matthew 9, 37 through 38, where Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, work extra hard and have long shifts until you bring them all in. Is that what he says? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers or the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest send out laborers into his harvest. When you look at the Gospel of Matthew, it's almost like this discipleship manual. Jesus calls his disciples, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you see how they, they move away from their old vocation to follow Jesus. When Jesus opens his mouth for the greatest sermon in the history of the world, the Sermon on the Mount, he addresses who? His disciples. And what's interesting is you go through all of his major discourses, his audience was the disciples. These disciples, they followed him, they, they watched him pray. They watched him deal with people, hold children, do ministry. They watched his interaction with the Pharisees. He taught them, he instructed them. It's interesting how he sends them on a training run in, in Matthew 10. Matthew 10, 5 through 6, these 12, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so he did minister to the crowds, right? But at the end of the day, what happened to the crowds? They turned on him. But Jesus is not alarmed because his focus was on a group of well-trained disciples who would take the torch from him and hand it to others. It was through the agency of disciples. And what's the command at the end? Make disciples of all nations. It's a self-perpetuating ministry. Now, I want you to do a thought experiment with me, okay? Let's say an angel of the Lord came to you and he gave you a choice. This doesn't happen today, but work with me. It's a thought experiment. And he were to ask you, you have a choice. You can lead one person to Christ every day for the rest of your life. Or you can lead one person to Christ every year and then the two of you the following year can each lead one person to Christ. Then the four of you the following year can lead one person to Christ and goes on from there. Which one would you choose? Option A, every day, or option B, every year? B, right? Because in 34 years, you can reach the entire world population through doing spiritual multiplication. In contrast, in that same amount of time, you're looking at about 12,400. We see spiritual multiplication is the way to go. It's slow, steady, robust growth where you are recruiting more marathon runners to run the relay. And so ultimately, what you're trying to do, you have the torch and you want to look for other relay participants. You're looking to build mature Christians, right? So when you look at that term maturity, like if somebody is immature, you know, if they're 40 years old, 
eating Fruit Loops every day, playing in the mom's basement. They're immature because they're acting childish, right? See, built into this idea of maturity is they're not a child. And so you, you think about what's the difference between a child and adult, right? You have size, chest hair, and the ability to reproduce, right? That's one of the major differences. So part of it is you want to build Christians up so that they can replicate, that they are mature Christians. And just like you don't want to, you can have children raising children, you want to have mature adults raising the children, right? So what are the signs of maturity? I'll give you um, four of them. One, mature Christians can feed themselves, right? Children can't feed themselves and need to be fed, right? That's why we teach them how to feed themselves. Mature Christians don't need to be constantly told what to do. They can actually see things and take initiative. Well, this room is dirty. Perhaps I should clean it up. You know, I'm kind of detecting some spiritual dryness in my life. This is what I need to do. Wow, I fell big time into sin. These are steps I need to take. Mature Christians can identify where they have gone wrong and take the necessary steps, right? They're self-fixers. They're kind of like basketballs. They do know how to bounce back. They don't need to have their hands held every time. And mature Christians are ready to replicate themselves. You know, they have managed to grow and they can help other people grow as well. And, and this is not just limited to pastors replicating pastors, but deacons replicating deacons, elders replicating elders, right? Drummers replicating drummers, Sunday school teachers replicating summer school or um, Sunday school teachers, right? You go on down every ministry, right? Sound techs begetting sound techs. There is a transmission that goes on in, in all of these things where you seek to replicate yourself. And so we have the purpose, right? You, you want to be self-replicators who can carry the torch. The third step, and probably the most important, is to select the people to disciple. Not everybody is a candidate to be discipled. For instance, in 2 Timothy 2.2, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Okay? So, faithful men who are able to teach others also. So, by faithful, what he's talking about here are people who practice right doctrine. Okay, they understand the gospel. They understand that Jesus is Lord. They understand that God sought, sent Jesus to save you from your sin. And they live like people who have been delivered from their sin. They live preaching the gospel of salvation from sin. They have a right understanding of doctrine. And if you truly understand the gospel of grace, it will necessarily lead to some spiritual growth. Right? These were people who practiced what they preached. They were, they were faithful. They were men of scriptural integrity. But they're also able to promote what was preached. In this case, you can entrust them with the gospel and they would be able to teach it to others. Right? Entrust speaks of the same word as deposit. Right? They're able to take what was given to them and pass it on to others. They're able to not only understand it, but send it out. And so you see that they were capable they were faithful, 
those are the explicit qualifications. But implicitly, if somebody is teachable, they have to be available. For you teachers out there, it's very difficult to teach a student who never comes to class. Right? They need to be there to receive that instruction. It's also impossible to teach a student who believes they don't have to be taught. They're here to just get the degree to be certified. They don't need you to correct or instruct them. So implicitly, they have to be available and they have to be teachable. So they're faithful, capable, available, and teachable. Now, capability will vary depending on what you disciple people for, right? But at its core, you always hear about fat people, faithful, available, and teachable. And often, when people fail at making disciples, it's because they pick the wrong people. They pick the wrong people. Now, consider Susan. Susan is a highly respected woman in the church. She leads a Bible study. She organizes Sunday schools for the kids. Uh, She has an exemplary marriage. Uh, Her children are all faithful to the Lord. And she's approached by two women who just heard this message who want to be discipled by her. One is Stacy. Stacy just became a Christian, got saved out of a rough background. But when the doors are open, she is at church. When she goes to Bible study, her homework is done. She is eager to help in any way possible. Does somebody need to come in early and and help juice the communion cups? She'll be there. Somebody need to stay late and do clean up? She'll be there. If child care is what the Lord has for her, she'll do it. Okay? That is Stacy. The other person who wants to be discipled by Susan is Jennifer. This is a woman who is electric when she walks into a room. She has a charismatic, winsome personality. She makes everything fun. And she comes to church when she can. Yeah, but between her child's commitments and serving on the school board and managing her very successful home business. She is hit or miss when it comes to church attendance and involvement in ministry. So who do you disciple? Jennifer, the charismatic winsome one, or Stacy, the shy, understated one? You guys know the answer, right? Stacy, every single time. You find the people who are faithful. And frankly, if, if someone is not willing to be at church, Bible study, Sunday school, they're not willing to be involved in the church, and they just want you to disciple them, you know, a lot of times people just want that for status. Oh, I meet with so-and-so, so I'm good. That discipleship relationship should be saved for people who have shown faithfulness in all those other areas. And when they are, and they're still wanting more, those are the people that you pour into. And friend, if you want to be poured into, that needs to be who you are, is you need to be faithful, available, and teachable. And that's really where a discipleship ministry begins, right? Is by you being the type of person who wants to grow, who wants to learn, 
who can be taught. And so if you come to somebody and you say, I would like to be discipled, and they say, well, absolutely. Now, you're thinking that the pastor or the pastor's wife are going to be the people to personally disciple you, but instead they say, you know what, Jed would be great to disciple you. And you think, Jed? Who's Jed? Oh, you know, you, you see him, he's handing out bulletins. Uh, you know, he's one of the people who have an eye on for being a deacon. He's been married for 30 years, great marriage, great kids. And you think, well, it's Jed. I was thinking I'd be discipled by Pastor John. Could it be that you are not the caliber of person who you thought you were? If you're not willing to be discipled by Jed, Pastor John's smart enough to know that you won't want to be discipled by him either. Somebody who is faithful and available and teachable can be taught by anyone. And if that is your disposition, then you are ready to be discipled, right? So the first step, in addition to harnessing the power to disciple, to find the purpose of a disciple and select the people to disciple, is you need to be faithful yourself. When you do all those things and you're faithful, when the pupil is ready, the teacher will appear, as one of my friends used to say. Secondly, if you want to have a discipleship ministry, you focus on your family. You start with your family. If you have been given the gift of children, you have an opportunity to make disciples. We've been talking about this in our parenting class. Right? The, the, the media wants you to believe that parents have no control over their children. Right? And you think, well, between the university and the school system and all these sports and all these activities and the shows that they watch and video games they play, I don't have a voice. Well, yes, you do. You have something called the off button. Social media, gone. You're the only voice that they'll hear. You have a profound ability to shape and influence your kids. Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God has designed the family so that the parents have the greatest influence. So use your influence well. Speak truth into their life. I was talking to another friend. You don't just speak truth into life when they're in trouble. Uh-oh, he's talking about God. What's going to happen to me? <laughs> you speak truth at all times. Over dinner, when you put them down, learn how to have spiritual conversations with your children. One thing I try to do is I get together with, with my boys and they have amnesty. Right? Whatever they share with me during this time of amnesty will not lead to any repercussions for them. Right? You try to make it fun, go through a book together, spend time together. But you work with your children. You know, it's interesting, if you do this really well, other people who care about their children and how to raise their families, they will find you. They'll find you. I mean, they'll read passages like Titus 2, 3-4, through 4, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not slander, slaves, too much wine. They will be able to teach what is good. And so train young women to love their husbands and love their children. When you focus on your family and you're faithful, they will find you. Thirdly, seek disciples. If nobody's asking you to disciple them, do you know what you do? You find somebody who knows less than you. Go to the highways and the byways and share the gospel frequently. And when that person converts, boom, you know something more than that person does. I mean, a lot of times we think, 
nobody ever got, people do come to Christ. You share the gospel with them, they come to Christ. You've got a natural relationship where you can continue to mentor and disciple them. Secondly, if you're just serving in a ministry and some rookie comes on, get to know them, talk to them, and, and just say, hey, you want to get together sometime just for coffee? Yeah, and you just ask them about their story, how you're doing, and, and if they're acting really refreshed, do you want to do this again? Yeah, that would be great. Well, how about this? Let's go through a book together. We'll go to the resource center and we'll go through Trusting God and you underline the five most meaningful sentences in, in, in the chapter. I'll do it the same thing. I'll do the same. And then we'll talk about it. And what do you know? You have a discipleship relationship. Okay, so seek them. Seek to find disciples. Fourthly, have a plan. Be purposeful. Know what you want to accomplish, right? which is to make a mature, self-replicating Christian. And then have a plan for getting there. Okay? And I'll give you some general strategy. Number one, start with just basic accountability to live the Christian life. Do you read the Bible and pray? Do you have a quiet time? Do you know what a quiet time is? Well, let me show you what I do. I have this Bible reading plan, and then I read through the Bible this way, and this is how I pray at the end of the day. These are certain things that I pray for every day. These are things I pray for once a week. Have a plan, right? Secondly, you want to keep them accountable. I mean, if you are, let's say, meeting with a, a single Christian, talk to them about purity in their relationships. Talk to them about their thought life, their internet use, and some of those things. You go there, you ask those questions. You ask them how they're getting along with their friends or family. You, you, you find out, you make sure that they're going to the Bible study, they're going to the Sunday school, and you're keeping them accountable to live the basic Christian life that they're practicing all the spiritual disciplines, right? That's kind of a foundational thing. And then you might find out that there's some area in their life that they're really struggling with. You're discipling a young mom who is losing it with their kids. Well, you know what? Let's go through this book on anger together. You read one chapter... A week, you underline the five most meaningful phrases. Easy homework, right? I'm repeating it on purpose. And then we'll get together and you talk about it. You focus on their character. Where do you need to grow? And then, not only you know, basic Christian living, focusing on their character, there's also the issue of their capability and competence. Train them to take over a ministry. If you're organizing a woo or you're organizing a Bible study, or if you're leading a kid's Sunday school class, or if you're putting together a work day, you say, listen, we're going to sit down and we're going to plan on how to do this together. Sometimes I sit down with guys and I say, okay, you're going to teach the next Bible study. Let's work on how to write it and how to develop it. And, and this is really one of the reasons why discipleship can be a challenge. It's because it's easier to do it yourself than to delegate it to somebody else. Because when you transfer it to somebody else in a way that they can transfer it to somebody else, it means you have to put in a lot more work. Like a number of years ago, um, the Bible Church of Owasso asked us to do, um, asked us for help in having their own Ironman Summit. And so what that required was that we had to make the intentional decision to sit down and write down everything that we do and when we do it. 
It meant that we had a lot of meetings with them and we basically had this whole packet that we wrote and developed and formalized and handed it over to them so that they could do the same thing. But now that we made it transferable, if another church approaches us, we know exactly what to do. And so sometimes you have to put more work to make something more transferable, but the result is you can train somebody on how to do it and then they can do the same thing. And then fourthly, you got to be patient. Rookies make rookie mistakes. And if the goal of the church is to do everything excellently, then you're going to burn out the excellent doers. If excellence can't be a core value of a disciple-making church, the core value needs to be development, raising up future leaders. That means sometimes the person leading the Sunday school class may not be that gifted. He might put some of you to sleep, but it's a win because he's being developed. And so instead of having a consumer mindset where we want the best product, the goal needs to be we want to educate and develop people, and we rejoice whenever we see a young person taking a chance. You see, in all of this, you have to look beyond our church. And imagine the possibilities of what happens if we do develop these people. I came across a commentator who, who shared about this real fascinating chain. In the 17th century, Dr. Richard Sibbs wrote a book entitled The Bruised Reed. And a copy of this book fell into the hands of a tin peddler who gave it to a boy by the name of Richard Baxter who read it, was converted, and became one of the most esteemed pastors of his generation. He wrote a book called A Call to the Unconverted, which was picked up by a man by the name of Philip Doddridge, who wrote a book entitled The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul. And that book was picked up by a man named William Wilberforce. I'm not sure if you know who he is. He was uh, a Christian politician in 19th century England who almost single-handedly ended the slave trade in the British Empire. Three days before he died, it came to an end. And his ministry influenced men like Charles Colson and others, right? One generation to another. And when you look at the flame, it's not like we have one single destination. But in this church, I, we're really net exporters, right? We have college students who come in and then go back out. And so there is an opportunity where we can take the truth that God has taught us here regarding a high view of God and a high view of his word and light these torches and then send them out to impact the rest of the region and the world. But it all starts when we make a conscious commitment that we will carry the torch. And that looks different for everyone, right? It's really a community project that all of us are involved in. But you seek to be discipled, and then you seek to make disciples. And where you are in the progress, in that, in that mechanism, will change. But if you are being discipled, it's with the purpose that someday you will do the same. Think through how you can pass along the ministry. Have an eye to the next generation, and then we'll see what the Lord does. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you grateful for this charge and grateful for the opportunity that you have given us to pass the torch to the next generations, both in this church, to the children, 
and to others in the region. And we pray that you might use our body to be replicated and that we might be a church that's worthy of replication and Christians worthy of replication. Please use this message to really create a culture where we anxiously seek to empower other people to make disciples of all nations. We pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.